Welcome to the Essential Geopolitics podcast from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Emily Donahue. One of the most important foreign policy engagements that the Biden administration has to undertake in 2021 is how to deal with Iran. The relationship between the two countries grew more complicated during the Trump administration. The U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA. Iran became more aggressive in the Gulf. And not long ago, Iran passed a bill expanding its nuclear program a tactical move to push the U.S. into lifting crippling sanctions on the country. Each country is waiting for the other to act first in these nuclear negotiations. This is a complicated topic, and so I asked Stratfor senior global analyst Matthew Bay and Middle East and North Africa analyst Emily Hawthorne for guidance. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So, Matthew, maybe I could start with you. What are the main conditions that would need to be present for the U.S. and Iran to return to the JCPOA negotiating table? Right. So that's a great question. I mean, there is a a lot of things that are important that are happening right now in terms of what both the United States and, and what Iran wants to get from one another right now. So, for example, we've had a transition here in the United States from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. The Biden administration is kind of re- readjusting the way that it is looking at at the Iran issue. Um, For example, the Trump administration was really focused on Iran's activities beyond just its nuclear program. It wanted to use its sanctions architecture um, as a way to to get concessions on Iran's activity in the broader region, Iran's ballistic missile program, etc. And now the Biden administration is really focusing efforts on using those really debilitating sanctions only on Iran's nuclear program, which means that they're trying to essentially negotiate some sort of a constraint on that. Um, Iran, over the last um, two years, has really been dramatically ramping up its nuclear activity. Um, you, you alluded to the law that was passed uh, in December that is requiring the Iranian Atomic Agency to essentially uh, increase enrichment to 20% in some cases, increase uranium enrichment stockpiles, also um, suspend some aspects of cooperation with the IAEA. Um, so these are all things that right now are going to be negotiated between the U.S. and Iran to some degree. There's going to be questions around around that process, etc. cetera. Uh, but one of the things that is really worth mentioning is that Iran's nuclear program is now in a place where this question about the, Iran's nuclear breakout, so the time that it would have to basically get enough material for one nuclear device, um, we're now getting to the point where, where it, it's a matter of you know months or even in some cases, by some estimates, a, a number of weeks before Iran can do that. And that really is raising up the, the pressure on both the U.S. and Iran um, to start negotiating over this issue uh, because the U.S. is going to be demanding more sanctions and other countries are trying to put more pressure on Iran to actually negotiate as well. So I think we are starting to see momentum behind a, a negotiation process between the U.S. and Iran. The question, of course, is going to be that process. Emily, can you go over some of the, the questions that we have about how Iran and the U.S. can really get around this question about how to negotiate? Yeah, it, what we're dealing with here is really this issue of sequencing this idea of who really gives first in this stage where we're sort of negotiating to start negotiations. We're not even really at that phase yet. Right now, we're at a moment where we're trying to gauge the level of trust on both sides in Iran and in the United States, um, trying to gauge whether Iran is going to return to some compliance in line with uh, some of the agreements in that 2015 nuclear deal, or if the U.S. is going to give sanctions relief first. Right now, we really are at this phase where it's not clear 
which side is going to make a first move in that respect. And the Iranian government at this moment is very clear that they want to see the United States move first and, and make some sort of practical move instead of setting conditions on Iran. From Iran's point of view, they have been abiding by the commitments that they made to that initial nuclear deal. And it was the United States that walked away from that deal. So they want to see the United States come back first and sort of agree to relieve some of the sanctions that it's placed on Iran over the last few years. And then that would be a confidence building measure that they can use to then build towards future talks. Right now, we, we really are at this moment where that, that question of, of sequencing sort of what comes first, that is a major decision point on both sides. And it's, it's not exactly clear what's going to happen. And one of the things is right now, obviously, when you go into a negotiation, you're always going to put out, you know, some sort of a hard line. Um, so you can just start, you know, with the with your extreme demands before, you know, coming out to some sort of a moderation of your demand or your moderation of your concessions in terms of what you are willing to do. So I do think there is, you know, some room for for collaboration, even though you're right, the, the sequencing issue, the sequencing question right now, at least from the explicit statements both sides are making, there's not a ton of overlap. But we've seen in, in previous negotiations between Iran and the U.S., uh, both under the Obama administration, where we had an initial agreement uh, in 2013, the joint uh, plan of action, and then also rumors in the Trump administration where we were close to maybe getting some sort of a limited deal where Iran would, you know, freeze its nuclear activity uh, in exchange for some level of sanctions relief. Um, so there probably is at least some sort of a confidence building measure um, that might be an interim that is not just that, that, that strict immediate return to compliance where both sides could somehow maybe save face politically. So we might have, for example, Iran not implementing all of the aspects or maybe rolling back partially on some of the aspects of what that law passed uh, last year would be requiring in exchange for a very specific amount of sanctions relief that may be, you know, on the order of restarting partially some of the waivers for for exports of oil, for example. Yeah, that's a really important option for how Iran might behave moving forward. And and it, and it makes me think that before we even go into some of the possible scenarios here between Iran and the U.S., it's probably helpful if we just lay out some of the outstanding issues and sort of what are some of the, the sort of chips on the table that are of concern between Iran and the U.S. Um, you know, you already mentioned the nuclear program, which is ostensibly, you know, the main issue, really the the premier issue between them that, that we're talking about here. But, I mean, there's a lot of questions between Iran and the U.S. over other aspects of Iranian behavior, and frankly, US behavior in the Middle East as well, but really Iranian use of ballistic missiles and sort of what is the future and nature of their ballistic missile program? Or what about um, Iran's regional strategy and their use of and their use of proxy militia forces across the region? Right. And I think the the question around those two issues is something that the Trump administration really did want to focus on in terms of what it was using its sanctions pressure tool for. Uh, but now we're trying to scale that back. And of course, the Biden administration has decided to to bring up that as something they want to talk about with Iran. But it really does come down to, you know, is the U.S. going to be willing to, you know, forego a deal on its on Iran's nuclear program in order to get some of the demands that it has on these broader strategies that may or may not come to pass. You know, what is that risk tolerance that the U.S. has right now? One of the things that's really we haven't really even mentioned is 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 the gap between maybe the U.S.'s priorities 
um, and say what the I Israel or the GCC states would necessarily want in any kind of a normalization and or agreement, et cetera, um, with Iran that would lead to more sanctions relief. Can you elaborate more on what you think uh, Israel and the GCC would want and the way that they would want these negotiations to go? That's a really important issue in these this moment where we're in pre-talks, on talks, on talks. The United States and its allies in the region, Israel, one of them, uh, the Arab Gulf states in the GCC, they have a very deeply vested interest in the future of talks between the U.S. and Iran. And to some degree, you know, they did have some influence in discussing and shaping the 2015 JCPOA nuclear deal. They both, Israel and the Arab Gulf states, are concerned for their own national security about the prospects of not having enough influence in sort of the way that the U.S. is going to carry out talks with Iran. And I think that we are in a moment uh, right now in the region where Israel is probably more convinced than ever that they assure their national security how they see fit. They know that the United States is going to be negotiating for the United States. They're going to take their allies' interests into consideration. But the United States is going to be negotiating with Iran in the future for the sake of U.S. interests. So Israel is going to be looking at those negotiations and sort of playing off of them and making sure that they um, act in such a way and, and sort of prepare their own conflict scenarios, uh, vis-a-vis -vis Iran with respect to Israel's own interests. And I, I think the same is true to some extent for the Arab Gulf states. They have a very different relationship with Iran, of course. Um, there are talks, all sorts of talks that happen between the Arab Gulf states and Iran, you know, sort of across the Persian Gulf, backdoor talks and, you know, sort of more public diplomacy. But they also want to make sure that the United States isn't agreeing to something in the future that might harm their national security. So they're going to try and have as much influence in any sort of future negotiation as possible. But just like Israel, they know that, that this is going to be a negotiation between the U.S. and Iran. And The other thing to think about here, though, is from the Saudi Arabian and uh, Emirati perspective, is that they have a little bit different of a calculus when it comes to risk tolerance of the impact of maintaining the status quo than, say, for example, Israel does. Um, when we saw Iran... Um, conduct a number of these, uh, of regional attacks in in 2019. They included attacks on, on Saudi oil infrastructure, for example. So there's a much bigger gap between what Saudi Arabia has to face in a in maintaining a very hardline position that wouldn't uh, result to negotiations than what Israel would face. So there is a, a pretty big delta there that we have to be thinking of moving forward when when we're talking about you know if a deal or can emerge or if negotiations break apart, what the consequences are. Really, where does Saudi Arabia and the UAE and other GCC states really fall along the lines of wanting to have a very hardline position versus uh, some sort of an understanding with Iran, whatever that looks like. Yeah, that, that's an important point. And then would you elaborate a little bit on the issue of sunset clauses and, and why that's such a big issue as we're talking about this? Yeah, the whole thing about the JCPOA is that the last three years have really brought us to a point where, where there are questions about how sufficient the JCPOA is as its current construction. Iran, for example, has been demanding some levels of compensation because of, uh, because of the U.S. pulling out of the JCPOA. Um, but when the agreement was originally uh, negotiated and, and signed in 2015, it kind of was never a permanent agreement. There are always going to be things that eventually started to have 
clauses sunset on restraints on, so for example, arms embargoes on Iran, etc. Some of these are starting to expire right now. So in October 2020, we had one of the the UN arms embargoes um, against Iran uh, expiring under technically under UN law that the U.S. Uh, under the Trump administration, the Biden administration hasn't been as clear, does not recognize. So there is this question now as we re-enter these negotiations to some degree is, is the U.S. going to be demanding extending some of the sunset clauses because that lack of trust between the U.S., which in theory under the original agreement was supposed to be built up over the deal's first six or seven years, clearly it didn't happen on both sides. Um, so really the question is, is, is can the U.S. have any leverage to actually even have Iran entertain the idea of any kind of sunset clauses as from the Iranian perspective is, is where's that trust going to be coming from? Because clearly they're going to be looking at any deal that they negotiate with the Biden administration as, well, what happens in four years if this is not the administration that we're dealing with with the United States again? Are we just going to have whatever we negotiate now um, just completely get uh, ripped apart again? If I can just hop in here for one second, Emily, given all of what you just discussed above, and that's not a small amount of complications, what would be the most plausible scenarios surrounding any negotiations? Yeah, I think if we are looking at say, an 18-month time frame. And, th- and that's important because we're talking about not just in the immediate coming months, but, but something that really takes into account uh, you know, how long it takes for negotiations to get off the ground and, and how long it might take for any potential negotiations to bear fruit. So if we're looking at it in, in, on that sort of time frame, um, I think we see four sort of broad scenarios that are plausible. Um, one is that you do reach, the U.S. and Iran do reach an initial compliance for compliance deal in such a way that uh, it lays the groundwork for a broader deal. The next scenario would be that you reach that initial compliance for compliance deal. And, you know, they, they work out, you know, some of those sequencing issues we talked about, but we don't reach a broader deal. We sort of come to an impasse beyond that initial compliance for compliance deal whether it takes um, a lot longer or there are various political constraints that, that we can go more into. Beyond that, there are also two other scenarios. One is that you do see talks between the U.S. and Iran continue, but you really don't even see that initial compliance for compliance deal materialize. You know, whether it's a breakdown in trust or stagnation in talks or a whole host of political reasons on either side could lead to just not seeing that initial compliance for compliance deal even materializing. And then finally, perhaps the most obvious, but what would be um, among the most sort of disruptive scenarios is that talks between the U.S. and Iran really completely fall apart and both sides escalate their various campaigns against each other. Those are the four broad scenarios that we see moving forward. So I thought we could sort of go more specifically into a couple of the things that would characterize each of those scenarios. Yeah. So on that first scenario, when we talk about the broader deal, um, Emily, where do you think that we could see some aspects of, of collaboration between the U.S. and Iran, where Iran might be willing to make some of those more broader issues, whether it be on its missile program or its regional strategy, negotiations with the Saudis, etc. So I think that in this initial scenario um, in which we do see a lot of confidence, a lot of trust sort of built up between both sides, there would have to be a lot of movement from the U.S. in terms of sanctions relief, which we would then see having a real calculable impact on 
Iran's economy. I think you would see Iranian flexibility with respect to those sunset clauses you talked about, sort of a willingness to extend uh, the duration of the deal. Also, in this scenario, you have those regional allies, Israel and the Arab Gulf states, whether they have any sort of direct influence in the talks or whether they just happen to have some of their national security concerns answered, we see sort of the caliber of their own respective conflicts and tension with Iran decrease somewhat. Um, and so that sort of enables more of an environment for real talks between the U.S. and Iran. And that's just a couple aspects. I'm, I'm curious what else you see as important in this possible scenario. One of the things that we've kind of not really gotten into, which I think is going to have a, a major impact on really, if you think of our scenarios as those first two that you mentioned, both of them having an initial agreement. And then the question is, is the success of a negotiation um, afterwards? And then the, the latter two scenarios, which were more talks either struggle to go move forward with or break down entirely, um, really is the upcoming June election, uh, presidential elections in Iran. President Hassan Rouhani is not eligible for re-election. Um, so we really are entering a period where we could have a pretty big significant change in terms of just the the overall negotiating stance or position, or at least who's involved in the room when it comes to to the Iranian side of negotiations. Longtime Foreign Minister Javad Zarif will, may not necessarily be a, the lead negotiator anymore um, after um, August when the, new, when the new government comes into power. Of course, in Iran, the supreme leader always has a, a huge say in what the final direction of the, the country is, and any negotiations can only succeed with his support. But the elections in Iran, they do offer a good bellwether uh, in terms of what Iran's willingness is to negotiate or not negotiate. So those outcomes, I think, are going to be significant. And it really is unclear whether or not we are going to have, um, say, for example, the outcome that I think would lead to this scenario, which would be some sort of a, a coalition between Iran's conservative faction that's not really hardliner, but also that's moderates. That would be similar to what we have now under Hassan Rouhani. A more the more extreme outcome, which I think would point to those other two scenarios, which would be either a conservative government that's either influenced with or, do- or in partner with or dominated by um, Iran's more hardline elements and then also uh, the IRGC. Um, so I really do think that um, that that balance of power that comes out after the election is going to play a role in what the Iranians can actually um, legitimately offer as concessions to the United States. And one thing that we can be looking at in terms of an indicator that could point to maybe this scenario uh, where you're talking about a, a initial deal, then springboarding into a broader deal, is not only the outcome of a government that's similar to the Rouhani government, but also one that still has, through statements, the Supreme Leader's support against those more hardline IRGC members that are calling for um, nationalistic causes when it comes to defiance on negotiations for its ballistic missile program, things like that. I think that's something that's really going to be an issue that really it's hard for us now in February to really you know predict who's going to come out uh, of, of the Iranian elections. There's only a handful of candidates that have been declaring themselves candidates uh, for those elections, but it's going to be a critical um, indicator and outcome as to whether or not we get this scenario or, or one of the other. Yeah, and I think that that actually opens up really well into you know, that's one of the key differences between the first scenario and the second scenario is the nature of whatever government coalition or government emerges after those June presidential elections in Iran. And if we're in the second scenario that we see as plausible, which is that, you know, you do have that initial compliance deal reach, but but you don't really see in sort of the 18 month time frame any possibility for a broader deal, the Iranian political scene after June will really help inform us if we're going down that path. If we have 
a government that is much more constrained from pursuing the path of negotiation with uh, the United States. You know, perhaps we do have a somewhat moderate Iranian president, somebody who uh, has spoken of negotiation and the value of it in similar ways as Rouhani. But what if the very conservative parliament keeps constraining any sort of action? What if the Supreme Leader doesn't voice the same amount of support for that president as Rouhani really has enjoyed through most of of his several years as president? You know, we could be, if we're in a situation where we have a moderate president, but they're not as empowered because of other factors in the political scene, then I think we're in a situation where looking at that longer term deal is going to be harder. I mean, I agree with you 100% that it really does, you know, one of the key indicators is really going to be the outcome of the election and really how much support they have, not only from the Supreme Leader, but of course, the Iranian parliament, which was elected last year and is, is much more conservative slanted than, than, than the previous one that was more reformist slanted. Uh, moving to that third scenario, what are some of the things that could really, you think, would be an indicator of what would break down talks? What would, how is that process going to happen? Yeah, so I think in that third scenario in which we still have talks, but we don't even reach an initial compliance deal, that issue of sequencing that we talked about, if we are unable to reach any sort of solution to you know who goes first, sanctions relief or compliance with the deal, does Iran have to you know make some of those sort of good faith measures and, and real tangible actions on its nuclear program, sort of scaling back some of its some of its activity there? If the U.S. and Iran can't agree to any of those measures um, in terms of sequencing, I think that that's one of the key indicators that we're moving towards this scenario. Or what if Iran is really, really insistent about compensation? Um, that's something that you and I have talked about before, but we haven't mentioned in this conversation. You know, Iran views the U.S. walking away from the JCPOA as a total violation, and they think that they are owed compensation. That is something that even if Iran is saying, hey, I'm willing to comply on X, Y, and Z, but you need to compensate, you know, in, in some other way for the damage done through previous U.S. government actions, that's that's something that could lead to sort of a breakdown in trust and sort of this paralysis in negotiations. Right. And it, it kind of takes two to tango on this case. We've been talking about, you know, a lot on the first two scenarios about how um, the outcome in, in Iran is really important. I think in the this scenario, it's more also about, you know, what's happening in the U.S. is probably more important than the other ones because we're talking about pre- a president right now who is dealing with a ton of internal challenges. When you look at, you know, the uh, impeachment trial with former President Trump, um, you look at the domestic COVID-19 crisis in the United States, the, the likely to be difficult passage of several series of uh, economic stimulus. Then you talk about the U.S.'s broader concerns about, China as a strategic peer. President Biden does have a lot on, on his plate, and it's possible that the Iran portfolio just isn't something that takes up as much as the United States' diplomatic bandwidth as as a priority, um, which could then just be something that really does, you know, push this down the road in terms of just the negotiation process, which really does kind of stall everything. Um, and related to that, it's also going to be a, a, a political risk for the, the Biden administration, for example, to, to sign something within the next 18 months. When you just look at the, the election time cycle here in the U.S., we'd already be looking at midterms by then. So there is a lot of challenges when we look at just the Biden administration in terms of what they are willing and able to actually offer um, for sanctions relief even though maybe it doesn't necessarily have as much of an impact on the domestic politics in terms of votes as other issues, which, which are more, more vibrant here in the U.S. right now. 
But it does constrain the White House, as we saw even under the Obama administration, where um, Congress ultimately uh, did require a, a review mechanism. It really wasn't strong enough to prevent a deal from being signed, but it is something that, that, that does happen as well. And it also you know, leads us into that fourth scenario, which is where we have talks falling apart entirely. I mean, if we have the perfect storm matchup where we have on both sides serious constraints to the U.S. and Iran acting politically in pursuit of negotiations, you know, then we're moving towards this possible scenario. Yeah, and this scenario is interesting because um, if you think about what would drive what would drive Iran and the U.S. so far apart to the point where they don't even talk to each other under a, a, a democratic president here in the U.S., um, that would likely be Iran recognizing or at least accepting that they're effectively going to be a continuation of being a pariah state for not just four years, probably eight, maybe even longer. So really, when you talk about the way that Iran will have to clamp down on its domestic political system, to me, you're really going to have to have, um, you know, the security elite within the country, whether it be the the IRGC in coordination with a hardline president or hardline president or the IRGC using a former member that has similar views as the hardline IRGC members taking over for, for the presidency, you're likely going to see that being really heavily reflected in the way that the Iranian political system operates in this kind of, you know, bunker mentality, resistance economy, etc. for a very long time. Under which of the scenarios, Matthew, do we expect the Iranians to pursue disruptive actions in the cyber domain? That's a good question. So Iran's cyber activity, it kind of is, there's always some consistent level of it. Um, for Iran's overall strategy that Emily and I have been talking about, really this asymmetric strategy that we're talking about that, that Iran has, is that Iran is trying to use low-cost um, tools that it can use to basically raise the cost of the status quo to the United States, um, the GCC states, um, Israel, the European Union, etc. Cyber has become, quite frankly, one of the most important tools of that. So in all of these scenarios, uh, we would expect Iran to at least be doing some level of cyber activity, even in in the scenario that's the most optimistic where the U.S. and Iran can reach a second deal. There still would be lingering questions between the U.S. and Iran about the longevity of that deal. If you think about, you know, a change in administrations here in the U.S., I mean, I guess the only way that you could expect um, the U.S. and Iran to really have any kind of idea of of a permanence to an agreement is really either one over years of trust, which you can't really do that quickly, um, or maybe over some sort of a treaty. But even even then, the U.S. would then have be able to pull out of that. Um, And a treaty would require so many constraints in order to get passed here in the U.S. that it's not really a plausible scenario at this point. But the point is, is like even in that more optimistic scenario between the U.S. and Iran, there's going to be some level of Iranian cyber activity um, targeting a number of different countries, especially in the GCC. Now, when thinking about Iran's cyber activity, I think there's probably three or four layers to think about. One of those, which is probably the one that's going to be the most consistent across all of our scenarios, is Iranian cyber activity that's mainly around, say, for example, um, intelligence operation or intelligence gathering. Um, so, for example, phishing campaigns to try to gain ac- access to intel um, in Saudi Arabia, in the U.S., in the UAE, um, in Israel, etc. The next layer of more disruptive activity would be things that we would see that's more around economic activity. So, for example, the sh- uh, the Shamoon attacks that we saw on Saudi Aramco several years ago, and then the third layer, which is the more extreme layer, uh, would be attacks that that not only have you know damage to um, computer networks and systems around 
uh, economic interests, but also potentially damaging in a physical sense. Um, so, for example, um, last year there was a cyber attack on, on Israeli water infrastructure that was um, attacking the industrial control systems for Israel's water infrastructure, um, which could then um, have a, a, a physical impact to, to the safety of, of Israel's water, water supply. Um, so those three layers, I think, are what you really have to be thinking about when you be, are looking at Iranian cyber activity. In that first, those first two scenarios where we talk about Iran actually trying to actively get some sort of an initial agreement, maybe even a second agreement with the U.S., that's where you're likely only to really see that's where you're likely to only see that first bucket of kind of low-level cyber activity to be the most frequent. You know, the continuations of you know attacks that are going against U.S. companies that are operating in the region that are designed to just gain access to information. And that third scenario where the U.S. and Iran can't really get a deal, but they don't really break off talks entirely, um, Iran is likely to scale up from that and include, um, for example, more disruptive attacks targeting economic entities in in Saudi Arabia, economic entities in uh, the UAE, economic entities in countries that are supportive of the U.S.'s campaign. And that can include, you know, Australia, for example. That can include the United Kingdom if they're backing the U.S. Um, overall. In that scenario, we would expect Iran to to be willing to carry out some levels of attacks that could potentially be causing uh, physical damage. They would not necessarily want to do that in some of the, the other scenarios where they would be having a deal because they wouldn't want to have, especially once they sign a deal, because they wouldn't want to have anything that disrupts that. A, an attack that could be clearly uh, attributed to Iran that causes physical destruction anywhere in the world from a cyber attack, that is something that Iran that could potentially break up in negotiations with the U.S., and they wouldn't necessarily want that in those first two scenarios. However, even in a scenario where talks are ongoing, the frequency of such attacks would be relatively limited. We're not talking about a massive scale up in, in, in the frequency. Now, in that fourth scenario, which is the one where Emily and I were talking about it being more designed towards this question about uh, Iran becoming a, a medium term five next 10 years um, prior state or accepting that, we would expect Iran to take to take more of these destructive attacks that include uh, physical damage, they'd be much more willing to accept the, the the risk of doing so. So we would expect Iran to be continue to be pouring in resources um, into those capabilities of starting to target industrial control systems. So those are kind of the ways to think about it. From a scaling up of of of, of uh, amount of activities, you know, the first few scenarios where it's uh, more towards a deal, you're still going to have that low level of Iranian activity. But as you get to those more extreme scenarios, you really are going to be seeing a scale up in both sophistication of, of Iranian attacks, their, their risk tolerance in those attacks, um, and then also, of course, the frequency of those attacks. Matthew, what's the likelihood of the Iranians targeting U.S. or allied infrastructure? As I kind of illustrated that you do have this scale up in terms of the sophistication of the attacks, you do also think about the way that Iran would geographically do all, all of its attacks. The cyber war between, say, for example, Israel and, and Iran, which covers a number of different facets, it's likely to even have you know some of these more aggressive attacks, maybe not necessarily infrastructure attacks, but maybe attacks on economic interests in all of our scenarios. But when we're talking about a scenario where the U.S. and the West have start, started to have their talks break down with Iran, that's when Iran would be more willing to start targeting U.S. entities or European entities or Australian entities or Japanese entities with these cyber attacks um, that are not only really designed towards, you know, intel collection, but also to be economically destabilizing because the intent behind all of Iran's cyber strategy when it comes to those economic attacks and those physical attacks, it's about raising the cost of maintaining the status quo for the U.S. and all of its allies. Matthew Bay is a senior global analyst, and Emily Hawthorne is a senior Middle East and North Africa analyst for Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.